0: I ride in this wind On my good horse I call you My shiny black best To the playhouse of fortune To take the bright
1: silver And gold you have taken From somebody else
2: You're listening to episode 734 of Unwelcome Guests, The Case of the Missing Inquest. I'm Robin Upton, and that title points to, I think, the most suspicious circumstance around a highly suspicious event, the death of UK weapons inspector Dr David Kelly, perhaps uniquely amongst recent unnatural deaths there was no coroner's inquiry as to how and why his death came about instead there was a rather toothless inquiry headed by a hand-picked appointee of Tony Blair himself. Now we begin this show with a speech by Norman Baker MP who took a year away from the Shadow Cabinet in order to research a book, The Strange Death of Dr David Kelly, and I think this is from 2009. As you've heard,
0: I I gave up a year of my um, front-bench role to look at this matter, and I did so because it seems to me the events of 2003 are of critical importance to this country still in terms of how we are run, how those responsible for government behave, what the morality or otherwise of those in government is, and there is unfinished business from 2003. There's unfinished business in terms of the Iraq war, there's unfinished business in terms of David Kelly's death. We have an opportunity to pursue that now because the Chilcot inquiry is now underway. That's uh, allegedly an independent inquiry to investigate the run-up to the Iraq war, the war itself, the conduct of the war, and the aftermath. Uh, I've met Sir John Shawcott and I've raised with him issues of concern to me, including uh, David Kelly's death. Uh, it's unfinished business because um, what happened in 2003 was a disgrace to this country, uh, an affront to democracy, and uh, cannot be allowed to happen again. Those responsible must be brought to book. Let me run through that in, in some uh, detail. You may recall in the run-up to the war in 2003, uh, we were told uh, in increasingly strident terms by Tony Blair and Alastair Campbell and others um, how the threat from Saddam Hussein was increasing, uh, how it was necessary to try to head off these weapons of mass destruction which he had, um, how the UN had to be engaged in a desperate attempt to avoid war, uh, and how at the last minute It was not possible to avoid war, and very reluctantly he had to go and undertake that overseas expedition. Uh, Of course, the truth is entirely different to that. Tony Blair was asked on the 8th of July 2003 by the Liaison Committee, that's the Senior Committee of Committee Chairs in the House of Commons, when it was he decided to go to war. He said... I decided that we could not avoid conflict in the few days before the vote on 18th of March because it was then that it was obvious that we could not get a second UN resolution that delivered an ultimatum to Saddam. Up until that point, I was still working to avoid the conflict. Uh, So we were led to believe by Tony Blair that uh, he decided only three months earlier, or four months earlier in March 2003, that that was when war was inevitable. Interestingly, subsequently, uh, there emerged in the Sunday Times uh, a memo written by Matthew Rycroft, the Prime Minister's private secretary, taken in July 2002, um, which was headed, this record is extremely sensitive, no further copies should be made, which is doubtless how it got to the Sunday Times. Uh, And it reports on the discussions between Sir Richard Dearlove, then the head of MI6, quaintly known as C, um, and this is what he recorded as having told Tony Blair and the cabinet, or elements of the cabinet. C reported on his recent talks in Washington. There was a perceptible shift in attitude. Military action was now seen as inevitable. Bush wanted to remove Saddam through military action, justified by the conjunction of terrorism and WMD. But the intelligence and facts were being fixed around the policy, July 2002. And what was the response of British ministers to that assessment from the head of MI6 at that point? Was it horror that the Americans are going to break international law? Was it a determination to use our so-called special relationship to rein them in? No, this is what Jack Straw's foreign secretary is recorded as saying in July 2002 it seemed clear that Bush had made up his mind to take military action even at the time it was not yet decided. But the case was thin. Saddam was not threatening his neighbours and his WMD capability was less than that of, Lib- of Libya, North Korea or Iran. We should work up a plan for an ultimatum for Saddam to allow back in the UN weapons inspectors. This would also help with the legal justification for the use of force. Um, so there's no doubt that Ministers had decided in July 2002 to go to war. That's absolutely clear. At the very latest, they may have decided even earlier than that. And what happened after July 2002 and between then and March 2003 was a whole series of dossiers were produced, the famous dodgy dossiers, designed to convince parliamentarians and the public at large that the threat from Sudan was increasing and the military action was to be... Uh, inevitable that was a disgraceful deception um, when we were told first of all no war had been decided upon and there had been and then information was manufactured to justify the case for war Uh, Hans Blix the UN weapons inspector uh, subsequently said that the British government had taken the advice from the security services the intelligence and had changed question marks into exclamation marks In other words, they corrupted the system for political ends. Tony Blair, that man again, said to the House of Commons this, There was no attempt at any time by any official or minister or member of Number 10 Downing Street staff to override the intelligence judgments of the Joint Intelligence Committee. That includes the judgment about the so-called 45 minutes. We were 45 minutes from doom, as you may remember, according to the headline in some of the papers. It was a judgment made by the Joint Intelligence Committee and them alone. Which is contrary to what Hans Blix subsequently said about the interference. And I'm afraid the evidence is that Hans Blix was correct. Because we now know from the various drafts of the dossiers released that each one became stronger than the last. Until the last one which was finally released was sufficiently strong to serve its political purpose. There were 16 textual alterations suggested by Alastair Campbell. This is the Prime Minister's press officer, r- remind you, not an intelligence officer, no access to intelligence data. He was suggesting textual alterations. For example, uh, he suggested that instead of maybe a threat, uh, it should be is a threat, um, which strikes me as not simply presentational changes but changes to the whole thrust of the document when it was quite plain in the initial drafts that uh, London was not threatened directly uh, the 45 minutes related to battlefield conditions the uh, explanation that it related to battlefield conditions was removed thereby allowing the Sun and the Evening Standard to run headlines 45 minutes from doom Sir Roderick Braithwaite you may not have heard of him Sir Roderick Braithwaite uh, was a former chair of the Joint Intelligence Committee, and this is what he wrote in the Financial Times subsequent to the war. A specter is stalking British television, a frayed and waxy zombie straight from Madame Tussauds. This one unusually seems to live and breathe. Perhaps it comes from the Central Intelligence Agency's box of technical tricks, programmed to spout the language of the White House in an artificial English accent. There is another possible explanation. Perhaps what we see on television is the real Tony Blair, the man who believes that he and his friend have the key to the horrifying problems of the Middle East. Mr. Blair's prime responsibility is to defend the interests of his own country. This year signally failed to do. Stiffened opinions, but often in the wrong. He has manipulated public opinion, sent our soldiers into distant lands for ill-conceived purposes, misused the intelligence agencies to serve his ends, and reduced the Foreign Office to a demoralized cipher because it keeps reminding him of inconvenient facts. He keeps the dog but barely notices if it barks or not. He prefers to construct his foreign policy out of self-righteous sound bites and expensive foreign travel." And may I remind you that was the former chair of the Joint Intelligence Committee, uh, the senior body uh, of officials looking at intelligence for the government. Um, Tony Blair has never been held to account for that. He has, uh, in a a matter beyond satire, uh, where does private I go now, uh, been appointed, of course, as a Middle East peace envoy. So we then had the Hutton inquiry. The Hutton inquiry was set up following the death of David Kelly, officially to look into the circumstances surrounding the death of David Kelly, to which obviously I will return in a lot of detail in a moment. So what Lord Hutton did with his inquiry was to spend the time uh, discussing whether or not the BBC uh, was at fault for the situation which has arisen, uh, including David Kelly's death, uh, or whether it was in some way the government. And surprise, surprise, Lord Hutton concluded that the BBC was guilty of everything and the government was guilty of nothing. It was the most disgraceful uh, so-called inquiry, uh, I think, in this country's history. So disgraceful was it that when we had the results published in January 2004, uh, it forced the resignation of Greg Dyke, the director-general of the BBC, Gavin Davis, the chairman of the BBC, Andrew Gilligan, the reporter uh, who had been involved in the story, uh, and led to that spontaneous demonstration of BBC staff as they walked out of television centre and stood there defending Great Dyke in a manner which reminded me of nothing so much as the Prague Spring of 1968 in Czechoslovakia. It was the nadir for the BBC. And then we had the vomit-inducing sight of Richard Ryder, the BBC's uh, number two to the Director General, coming out to make the most obsequious uh, apology to the government for what the BBC had allegedly done. What the BBC had done was was report the facts. That's what they'd done. There was a marginal error... In Andrew Gilligan's report, but essentially the report which caused so much fuss when he reported that the dossiers had been sexed up, uh, that report was essentially correct. But all those people at the BBC resigned. Nobody from the government resigned over the Iraq war. Nobody. Not the Prime Minister, not the Foreign Secretary, not the Defence Secretary. Nobody. That's the kind of country we have to live in at the moment, and this is why this is unfinished business. We cannot ever allow again uh, a government to behave in that way and to get away with it. And the Chilcot inquiry gives an opportunity at least to bring in political terms that responsible for that desperate period to book. But then when that um, report was published in January 2004, uh, and it was clearly so far wrong that it, it generated ridicule and disbelief in equal measure from the public at large, uh, I wondered if he was so wrong on the issue of the BBC versus the government, uh, whether he was actually right on David Kelly. Because David Kelly, who, whose death had prompted this whole business, uh, had rather been forgotten in the inquiry. The inquiry centred, let us say, largely on uh, the government and the BBC. And poor old Dr Kelly didn't feature very much at all. There then appeared a number of letters Uh, from eminent and highly qualified medical experts uh, in The Guardian and other newspapers uh, disputing uh, the suggestion that David Kelly could have died in the way that Lord Hutton described and suggesting, in fact, it was clinically impossible for him to have done so. Uh, Those letters uh, worried me and I began to look into the matter and the more I looked into the matter, uh, the more concerned I became. I subsequently wrote an article for the Mail on Sunday in July I think that year 2004 and it generated the biggest response of anything I've ever done in politics about a thousand people contacted me by email, letter, uh, telephone all bar two uh, were supportive of the concern I expressed and urged me to go on with my investigations the public clearly weren't convinced by Lord Hutton as far as David Kelly was concerned and as you've heard I took some time out from uh, my party's front bench when the opportunity arose to look into the matter, and the result is this book, The Strange Death of David Kelly. Let me now turn to the events surrounding David Kelly directly from July 2003. David Kelly had been cleared over a long period of time by the Foreign Office, though less so by the Minister of Defence. He, had, he occupied a curious position of really acting for the Foreign Office but being technically line-managed by the Ministry of Defence, he'd been cleared by the Foreign Office to engage in discussions uh, with journalists uh, to give off-the-record briefings, and this had gone back many years. And therefore, for him to meet Andrew Gilligan, as he did at the Charing Cross Hotel, um, was not out of the ordinary. Um, And he gave him background information, uh, not for direct attribution. What changed, of course, was that the uh, allegation that the government had deliberately sexed up the dossier uh, was highly charged um, and went to the heart of the case for the Iraq war and the government's behaviour. It was a charge which is essentially proven to be correct subsequently. Anyway, when that was first broadcast, uh, Alistair Campbell uh, and uh, those around her went ballistic and declared war on the BBC and sent large numbers of letters to the BBC on a kind of hourly basis demanding apologies and retractions and everything else. Uh, Part of the strategy was to uh, then, I think, involve David Kelly on the government side, whether he wanted to be involved or not. He had gone to the Ministry of Defence to say, I think I might be responsible for this story, inadvertently or otherwise. There was then a decision taken, and uh, the, 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 the evidence for that is in the book that there was a meeting involving Blair and Jeff Hoon at which it was deliberately decided to leak Dr. Kelly's name or force it out in order that he could be used as a pawn in the battle between the government and the BBC. Not a very edifying way to deal with a public servant who'd done immense good for his country and for the world, but that was what was decided by those politicians. Subsequently, then, he was outed thanks to uh, Jeff Hood and others. And that led to his appearance at the Foreign Affairs Committee on the 16th of July, 2003, uh, when he faced uh, a difficult time. He wasn't used to the public gaze in that sense, um, and he was treading a fine line between not making matters worse, I think, in terms of what he said to Andrew Gilligan, while not uh, uh, lying, obviously, to to MPs in that that, uh, session. Now let me give you the official version of events, as Lord Hutton will describe it. Uh, The events uh, of that particular committee meeting were harrowing for David Kelly, uh, so Lord Hutton uh, will tell us. Um, He wasn't used to that. Uh, He came away thinking his career was um, at an end. He was very depressed. He then spent a couple of days mulling over it. And on the Thursday, he left his house for the last time, um, carrying with him his boyhood knife, um, and 30 co-proximal tablets with the intention of slitting his wrist taking the tablets either to aid uh, death or to deal with the pain of the wrist slitting uh, and there he passed quietly away on Harrowdown Hill um, that explanation is wrong in virtually all regards let me deal with his mood first of all and uh, his mood uh, is, is um, if you like circumstantial it's not possible to always be inside someone's mind But insofar as we can tell what was in his mind, he was certainly not suicidal. First of all, those I've spoken to who know him very well, including uh, UN weapons inspectors, colleagues, um, close friends, those who live in his village, um, all will absolutely state that uh, he was the last person in the world to commit suicide. He had dealt with um, very harsh and difficult episodes, including um, revealing forcing out details of an illegal bioweapons programme by uh, the Soviet Union stroke Russia Uh, and indeed the Iraqis in the early 1990s he was not the person to be intimidated by a bunch of MPs Um, however that uh, you might say that uh, we don't know whether that's really what he was like that's not proof and I accept that Um, he went to the Intelligence and Security Committee the next day on the Wednesday this is generally not known um, but I've got the transcript from that meeting Um, he gave evidence there he was in much better form even cracking jokes and on the Thursday um, the last day of his life um, he was sending emails to friends saying the worst was over how he was looking forward to getting back to Iraq and he actually spoke to the Ministry of Defence and booked a flight to Iraq the following Thursday emails were sent at 11.18 shortly before he left the house for the last time In addition to that, um, his wife was uh, ill in bed that lunchtime and his daughter was about to be married. So it had to be a particularly selfish act, I think, for him to have gone to commit suicide at that point. And all the evidence, circumstantial evidence, on his mood suggests that that was a highly unlikely action for him to have taken. However, that is uh, not definitively proven one way or the other. What is much more uh, difficult to rebut... Uh, is a clear evidence which can be accumulated uh, concerning the alleged method of death the knife which he was supposed to have used um, we never saw it, it was never produced at the Hutton Inquiry but we led to believe it was a knife he'd owned since boyhood it was a sort of gardening knife with a lip on it um, it was also a blunt knife it was a most curious weapon to use uh, if you were uh, to try and kill yourself We're told that he cut the ulnar artery. The ulnar artery, um, for those who aren't medically qualified, and I wasn't and still not, but I've learned about the ulnar artery, uh, is in your hand here. It it is only accessed by cutting nerves and tendons. Uh, It would have been particularly painful to have cut through nerves and tendons to get to this artery, particularly using the knife which I've just described. It's also an artery of matchstick thickness and therefore you might think unlikely to cause death by loss of blood particularly if you use a blunt knife uh, the wound will heal up more quickly than if you use an absolutely sharp knife I asked the national statistician Karen Dunnell uh, how many people had died from cutting the ulnar artery in 2003 in the whole of the UK the answer you may be surprised to know is one presumably Dr Kelly If you want to, um, and I'm not suggesting you do want to do this, but uh, if you were to want to cause death by loss of blood, then the suggestion is you might cut your arm uh, this way um, and put it in hot water. I'm told that's the way you might achieve death. Uh, Don't try this at home, as you see on Blue Peter. Um, Many people will assume that what um, you should do is in fact to cut the radial artery across here. And that's that's what they'll do on television programs. And and, and that, of course, will cause the loss of blood to a far greater degree than it would cutting the ulnar artery. Interestingly, a study of US prisons and attempts by US prisoners to kill themselves by cutting the radial artery uh, in the 1990s showed that, I think, I haven't got the figure in my head, I think of one out of 279 prisoners only was successful in killing themselves by cutting the radial artery, which would have caused a lot of a great deal more blood than cutting the ulnar artery. So even that is uncertain, at the very least, to cause death. It's also the case, that if you cause a, uh, a wound uh, of any significance, uh, blood will spurt out, because the heart obviously is still beating and pushing the blood round. So you might think, might you not, that in those circumstances, there'd be rather a lot of blood around Dr. Kelly's body, if he's supposed to have bled to death not an unreasonable assumption yet when the paramedics arrived on the scene uh, in Harrodine Hill they weren't actually clear how he was supposed to have died why was that? because there was no blood there was no blood evident uh, the only blood on his clothing was a small spot of blood about the size of a 50p piece on one knee and his left arm had been uh, was, was, uh, was blood soaked Uh, consistent, I might also say, with a cut after death rather than one before it. If he was going to have cut his ulnar artery with his right hand, which obviously he would have had to have done, you might have expected blood to have spurted up and cover his right hand and his right sleeve. Not a single drop of blood, not one, was found on his right hand or his right sleeve. How can this be? Extraordinary feat from David Kelly to be able to cut in that way and leave not a single drop of blood and there are some other curiosities as well about this, um, about this knife and the alleged method of death I asked the uh, Thames Valley Police in a freedom of information request uh, subsequent to the Hutton inquiry whose fingerprints were on the knife do you know what they said they said to me, I got it in writing there were no fingerprints recovered from the knife very curious for David Kelly to have been able to cut his ulnar the artery without leaving fingerprints he wasn 't wearing gloves either by the way, uh, just in case you were wondering about that. My Pedersen, who was perhaps david kelly 's closest friend, um, they were Baha 'i faith members together um, they worked together in the Iraq um, she was uh, is in the u s army i 've spoken to her at some length. Uh, she says that uh, David Kelly uh, had, earlier on that year, uh, injured his right elbow quite badly. And that when he had a meal together in a restaurant, uh, so bad was the injury, he was unable to cut steak with his right hand. Uh, and yet here we are expected to believe that he chose his right hand to cut uh, with a knife into the ulnar artery. David Kelly knew more about the human body than most people. Uh, if he had wanted to commit suicide, he could certainly have chosen a more effective and certain way than, than a method which had killed nobody so far that year in the UK. It is inconceivable a man of his knowledge and intelligence would opt would for such a clumsy method to try to kill yourself. Now we're also told uh, by the Hutton inquiry um, that a contributory factor to his death was the ingestion of coproximal tablets. And certainly in his um, jacket at the scene where he was found, there were three blister packs neatly put in this ja- inside his jacket um, of 10 coproximal tablets each, and altogether 29 tablets were missing. One tablet, for whatever reason, have been left uh, inside in situ. We are then perhaps invited to conclude that David Kelly must have swallowed 29 coproximal tablets. And yet, and yet, the official toxicologist at the Hutton Inquiry, Alex Allen, uh, said there was less than half a tablet in his stomach when he was examined. And uh, even if you allow for the possibility that um, the tablets had metabolized into the bloodstream, uh, he concluded that uh, there was less than half the lethal dose at maximum um, available to kill him. Coproximal tablets uh, are also uh, implicated in uh, liver failure. Uh, Had you taken an overdose of Coproximal tablets and failed to kill yourself, you would cause yourself significant long-term liver damage. Again, I don't think it's very likely that someone like David Kelly would have taken that risk. Had he wanted to kill himself, which I don't think he did, but had he wanted to kill himself, I'm sure he wouldn't have uh, chanced long-term liver damage. Uh, with an uncertain means of, of suicide. There's other curiosities as well about these coproximal tablets, or quite a few curiosities really, but one of the curiosities is that Maya Pederson again uh, made it known uh, that David Kelly had an aversion to swallowing tablets. Um, he would avoid doing so, he would take um, liquid solutions rather than swallowing tablets. So we're invited to believe that David Kelly is uh, suicidal. He's masochistic, uh, and he's illogical. I don't think he was any of those things, as a matter of fact. Now, in order to swallow the tablets, you might think that uh, he would require a good deal of water, because if you try swallowing 29 tablets uh, of coproximal tablets with a long axis, uh, that will require a good degree of water. You might also conclude, as medical opinion suggests, that if you have lost a lot of blood... Um, as we're invited to believe he has done he's supposed to have bled to death then the body in those circumstances will want to consume water as a compensation so did he consider consume a lot of water there was a water bottle there it was rather curiously placed ten inches from his left shoulder which is difficult to see how he would put it there uh, but the water bottle itself um, was one of those small ones you buy at railway stations for uh, about a pound um, it was about half full. So we're invited to believe that in order to swallow 29 tablets and compensate for the loss of blood, he actually only swallowed half a bottle of water. The bottle was smeared with blood. So I asked Tens Valley Police whose fingerprints were on the water bottle. No fingerprints were recovered from the water bottle, they told me, which makes you wonder how the blood got on there. Then there's a position of the body. But the volunteers who first found the body, the search volunteers, are adamant that the body was propped against the tree, upright, uh, with the legs spread out and the back against the tree, or at least the head against the tree. And indeed, I suppose we're going to uh, sit in the wood, um, and if you are going to kill yourself, then that's a logical position to be in. What then happened was that um, a, a police officer came along, called DC Coe. Uh, he was left with the body for 25 minutes and when the paramedics arrived after DC Co. had been there the paramedics t- told Lord Hutton the body was on its back uh, a little distance from the tree. So did DC Coe move the body? Well uh, DC Co. was asked about this and he said he observed the scene From seven or eight feet, we got no closer. He was there for 20 to 25 minutes. Um, Now, I don't know about you, but um, even if you are a professional police officer, I think you would take some notes of what happened and what the scene was. Twenty minutes is a long time to do nothing in a wood with no distractions, with the body in front of you. Now, I suggest that um, you might examine the body. Even if you didn't touch and disturb the scene, you would get rather closer than seven or eight feet. It seems a rather curious proposition that DZ Co puts forward. So presumably he did monitor the scene, didn't he? Well, no, because he couldn't tell Lord Hutton if the, uh, if David Kelly had a cap on his head or it was away from the body. He wasn't sure if he was wearing walking boots. He, he w- didn't know whether the watch was on the knife or whether it wasn't. Was the water in the bottle? He wasn't sure about that either. Uh, he doesn't seem to have rec- recorded very much in his 20 to 25 minutes. But we do know that The scene described by the volunteers who found David Kelly is different to the scene described by the paramedics who came subsequently, not simply the position of the body, but, for example, the volunteers (coughs) had said that the right arm, David Kelly's right arm, was beside the body. Uh, The paramedics said it was uh, on top of his chest. And uh, lots of other changes like that as well. There's also the interesting issue to what David Kelly was actually wearing. uh, Because... Um, Acting Superintendent David Purnell from Thames Valley Police told the Sunday Times on the 20th of July that David Kelly had left his house dressed in jeans and a cotton shirt despite the poor weather. Um, uh, That uh, is sort of backed up by his guardian the day before, the day after Kelly was found Saturday's guardian and the observer and the mail on Sunday which had him dressed casually in an open neck shirt and jeans with no coat curious then that uh, a green barber wax type jacket was found at the scene Uh, his his wax jacket including where the uh, proximal tablet uh, blister packs were found Uh, some inconsistencies you might think that Lord Hutton would want to get to the bottom of this wouldn't you Uh, you might think that uh, if you're having an inquiry into someone's death, you might want to try to reconcile the various different facts. That, I'm afraid, is not what Lord Hutton sought to do. Lord Hutton, in fact, took a rather interesting approach to the inquiry, uh, as subsequently appeared from a piece he wrote about it in in 2005. He wrote this in the Inner Temple Yearbook. Now, it's a racy publication, I'm sure you've come across it, but just in case you haven't, let me read to you what Lord Hutton wrote about his own inquiry two years earlier. At the outset of my inquiry, it appeared to me that a substantial number of the basic facts of the train of events that led to the tragic death of Dr Kelly were already apparent from reports in the press and other parts of the media. Therefore, I thought that there would be little serious dispute as to the background facts, I thought an unnecessary time could be taken up by cross-examination on matters which are not directly relevant. That's how Lord Hutton approached his inquiry, in his own words. And therefore, when the police gave conflicting evidence, as they did, about where the body was, what he was wearing, where the water bottle was, how many police officers even were there, because they are all matters which the police themselves contradicted themselves on. What did Lord Hutton do about that? Lord Hutton concluded, he noticed the inconsistencies, and when he reported, he said that the fact that there were inconsistencies shows the police were honest in telling the truth. Because, this is the reason why, stay with it, this is the reason why, because if the police had all said the same thing, he would suggest they had concocted the story. The fact that they all told different events shows that they were honest, but uh, perhaps had poor recollection. That was Lord Hutton's conclusion on that. And then there were interesting... Uh, moments when it looked like the inquiry might actually get somewhere Nicholas Hunt for example uh, the pathologist uh, when he was uh, questioned um, the first the first opening salvo to Nicholas Hunt was this from uh, James Dingerman QC, the QC for the Hunt Inquiry quote, I am not going to trouble you with the details of the toxicology report was the first thing he said to him why not, <laughs> that's what he's there for Why not ask him about the toxicology report? He wasn't subject to any cross-examination, despite the curious uh, aspects of the case. He was asked, however, at the end of his evidence, which didn't last very long, um, if you could tell from the examination if there were any signs of a third-party involvement in Dr. Kelly's death. This is what he said, the pathologist. The features are quite typical, I would say, of self-inflicted injury if one ignores all the other features of the case. So what happened then? Was Dr. Hunt asked what those features were? No. Thank you very much. That's what happened then. He, a- he was asked then, was there anything further he would like to say on the circumstances leading to Dr. Kelly's death? This is what he said. Nothing I could say as a pathologist, no. It's rather a curious answer, isn't it? You think somebody might want to pursue that point, but nobody did. So how was it that we had such a ludicrous inquiry... Uh, a joke of an inquiry, which failed to do what any normal process would do. Answer, it was not a proper inquiry, it was a statutory inquiry. It was a non-statutory inquiry. Now that may sound like a, a rather technical point, but it's actually terribly important. Lord Hutton was appointed um, with, due, with all due speed. Uh, for those of us who don't believe the government sometimes acts fast enough and takes a long time to do anything... Um, take heart from the speed with which Lord Hutton was appointed. According to the official event, Tony Blair was in the air, um, on the way from America to Japan, um, more than halfway there when he was told of uh, the Dr Kelly's body being found. This is the official version. He then spoke to Lord Falconer, uh, the relevant minister, and to Alastair Campbell. It was decided that there ought to be an inquiry into Dr. Kelly's death. It was concluded that Lord Hutton would be the appropriate person to chair that. It was necessary to send out the master of the Rolls to see whether he was in agreement with that. It was then necessary for Lord Falker to go to visit Lord Hutton to discuss the matter with him, uh, at which the terms of reference would be agreed. Lord Hutton then had to agree the terms of reference and mull over the matter. He then had to agree, Lord Falken had to appoint him, and it had to be reported back to the last of the rolls and to Tony Blair. And you know what? All this happened before Tony Blair actually landed in Japan. <laughs> Astonishing speed with which the government can act when it wants to do so. But of course what that did mean was that when the stories in the papers were written that day, they were written about the establishment of an inquiry, not about the circumstances surrounding David Kelly's death. A very convenient change of direction. Now, (coughs) in this country, if you believe in the rule of law, we have something called a coroner's inquest. And when somebody suffers an unexplained or violent death, there is an inquest. That inquest is established under proper procedures, long established proper procedures, uh, at which, for example, people give evidence under oath, they can be subpoenaed to attend, uh, and the normal safeguards of a court procedure will apply the rules of cross-examination for example um, and the hurdles required to reach verdicts for example in a coroner's inquest you have to be convinced beyond reasonable doubt that's the hurdle before you can bring in a suicide verdict beyond reasonable doubt I just wind you back for the last 10 minutes and ask you whether you think this is beyond reasonable doubt in this case but of course we didn't have a coroner's inquest Because the Oxfordshire Coroner, Nicholas Gardiner, began to look at the matter, as indeed he would. It was within his bailiwick, within his jurisdiction. But then what happened? Lord Faulkner, a government minister, who'd been in touch with Tony Blair, of course, about Lord Hutton's appointment, told the Oxfordshire Coroner he was being replaced in this matter by Lord Hutton. But the Oxfordshire Coroner said, well, I'd like to carry on a bit further. But then Lord Faulkner wrote to him and said, "I'm effectively, I'm bundling you off the case. You must stop your work now. Um, I've got those details, I've got those letters because Harriet Harman uh, very helpfully released them to me under the Freedom of Information Act so we know what Lord Faulkner wrote to the Oxford Coroner. It's all there in black and white. Now I don't know about you but I'm not particularly comfortable with uh, a government minister telling a coroner to get off the case uh, when it's a a significant death like this but that's what happened on this particular occasion and Lord Hutton was appointed and Lord Hutton was appointed under the Coroners Act 1988 under a provision which has been not very often used. Now, that provision was brought in by the then Conservative government for actually quite a sensible reason, because uh, when you have a situation such as, say, a train crash, and you have multiple deaths, all of which have the same cause, then it's actually more efficient and less heart-rending for the individuals involved, the family members and so on, if the matter can be dealt with as one inquiry rather than having a series of repetitive inquests. So that provision was brought in to deal with that situation. On every occasion, there haven't been very many, it's been four or five, on every occasion since then, when that provision has been used, there have been multiple deaths, except for David Kelly's. And on every occasion when that's been used, the coroner's inquest has been replaced by another statutory process, such as the 1921 Tribunals Act, with the same legal safeguards except in the case of David Kelly. And what we have with David Kelly was a non-statutory inquiry with as much legal formality as my talk to you here today. No more, no less than that. So Lord Hutton didn't have the ability to summon witnesses. He wasn't required to summon witnesses. There were key witnesses who didn't attend. My Pedersen, who told us about David Kelly's uh, averse to swallowing tablets who had information about his state of mind being his closest friend who knew that he damaged his elbow and couldn't cut with a knife shortly before he died. Um, Thames Valley Police told Lord Hutton she had nothing of interest to tell him. So she wasn't called to give evidence. The uh, police officer in charge of the inquiry Alan Young wasn't asked to give evidence. He didn't appear at the Hutton inquiry. He wasn't even mentioned I found out afterwards he was a man in charge. We didn't even know he was there. Didn't know he existed until then. And other key people weren't invited to attend either. So we had a partial inquiry in terms of those who turned up. We had an inquiry where there was no proper cross-examination, as demonstrated by some of the many loose ends which had been left hanging. And we had a so-called inquiry where people were not under oath. They could not be subpoenaed they could, if they wished to, lie with impunity. That is not a satisfactory way to deal with perhaps the most controversial and sensational death of this century, but that is what happened. And in addition to that, as I've mentioned earlier, Lord Hutton, in fact, spent relatively little time on David Kelly and a great deal more time on the BBC. That is a a disgrace of a process and needs to be remedied. Now, there's one more thing about the coroner. Um, because a coroner was uh, effectively told that he did have one last duty which was to issue a death certificate so he issued a death certificate which gave the reasons for death as incision of the ulnar artery and ingestion of co-proximal tablets and potentially a, a, a complementary cause uh, related to uh, hardening the arteries or some heart condition which by the way had not been picked up when David Kelly had uh, had a medical shortly beforehand, and it was unknown to his GP. That certificate was issued, I think, on the 14th of August 2003. Lord Hutton's inquiry had been in place for less than a week, and none of the evidence relating to David Kelly had been heard. So one might conclude, what was the point of Lord Hutton's inquiry if the death certificate had already established the cause of death? One might also conclude what was the point of asking the coroner to issue the death certificate if Lord Hutton was about to look into the matter. Either way, that cannot be squared as a process. And I would suggest to you that the conclusion that that Lord Hutton reached in his ludicrous and informal inquiry is, in legal terms, unsafe and cannot be sustained. So I'm in no doubt at the end of that, uh, looking into all that, and I've only frankly, touched the surface and, uh, with with the matter today. There's a lot more detail in here, which is even more I hope compelling. Um, I concluded at the end of that that uh, there was no other conclusion that could be reached than that had been murdered. It clearly wasn't suicide for the reasons I've given. It clearly wasn't a natural cause, and it clearly wasn't an accident. So that's the only explanation which you're left with. Now that's a very uncomfortable conclusion to reach. It's also a rather dangerous conclusion to reach, for someone who's a Member of Parliament, because it's outside the normal comfort zone which we operate in. Uh, And uh, although many of my colleagues will tell me sotto voce they agree with me, they don't want to come out and say so very much, publicly. It's a dangerous place to be in terms of political credibility. But I have to go with where the facts are. You can't disavow the facts. They are as they are. I then went on to look into who might have uh, caused David Kelly a death and for what reason. And that was much more difficult, obviously. Uh, if you find somebody metaphorically with a knife on their back, it's not difficult to conclude they've been murdered. Uh, it's much more difficult to establish who's done it. Uh, and uh, my uh, investigations took me uh, into contact with members connected with the security services, uh, both in this country and America, with UN weapons inspectors, with people in his own um, community and his own village, Um, with others who had something to say and my Mail on Sunday article which I referred to had in fact generated about 30 responses uh, specifically providing new leads or new information about David Kelly's um, circumstances which was useful to to be able to take forward Um, there isn't an obvious person or body responsible now I've in my book gone through and identified what I think happened. And I think the key to understanding what happened uh, is to ask why it is that uh, he was found as he was in Harrowdown Hill. If you accept, as I hope you do, that he did not inflict those wounds upon himself and that they were not the cause of death, then the key question is why those wounds were inflicted, why it was that the artery was cut why it was that the impression was given that he had committed suicide why was it a strange death and the only logical answer to that is that it was an attempt to make a murder look like suicide that's the logical explanation for that and as someone in the KGB once said um, any idiot can commit a murder it takes an artist to commit a suicide and I think there's some evidence of that there why would you do that? Well, th- the book goes into some detail as to uh, who might have been responsible and dismisses those theories. For example, I don't think it was in the interest of uh, the government of the day to have Dr. Kelly killed. Uh, I don't really like that possibility, uh, that governments do behave in that way on uh, occasions. Uh, I spoke in part of my inquiry to Wouter Bassin. Wouter Bassin is, uh, as you may or may not know, uh, the man who was engaged by the apartheid regime in South Africa, to develop weapons first of all to be able to kill people without it being detected and particularly to be able to kill black people and not kill white people that was his task he had a lot of money and uh, resources to enable him to do that Um, if you want to read about it it's all there and the truth and reconciliation hearing which have been published in open session by the south africans as a result of what um, Nelson Mandela put in place around the turn of the century I spoke to Walter Basson. Uh, his view was that, uh, he, well, first of all, he knew David Kelly and said he wouldn't commit suicide, but he also said to me, if you think Western governments don't have the capacity to commit assassinations, uh, then you're naive. Um, so, you know, I'll leave that with you. You can make up your own mind about that. But there was no obvious political motive for Tony Blair and his colleagues, whatever else they did, to have been responsible for David Kelly's death. It caused a, a storm for them, which may have led to the downfall of the government so it's difficult to see what motive they would have had in that matter. Others may have had other motives and I go through that in the book and I explain to you in there why I've reached a conclusion which I have. I'm conscious of the time and also I want to bring some people in for questions so let me stop there but let me just say what I want out of this process and why I'm doing it. I want three things. First of all I want a coroner's inquest Um, I've indicated in my book what I think happened. I've indicated why the conclusions Lord Hutton has reached are wrong, but I don't pretend that I'm a replacement for a proper legal process. I'm not. But I think there should be a proper legal process. I think if we don't stick to that basis in law, then it's a very dangerous road we go down. So there should be a proper coroner's inquest. Secondly, we need a proper and full inquiry into the Iraq war. I hope that John Chilcott will provide that. And I'm certainly more hopeful, having spoken to him, that he might be somewhere nearer it it than uh, Lord Hutton did. But we need to bring to book those who lied to us, including our Prime Minister. He can sue me if he wants. Who lied to us in 2003 uh, about what was the position regarding Iraq. Those people need to be brought to book. And thirdly, I think given what David Kelly did uh, to make the world a safer place, and the service he gave to this country and to the world it would not be inappropriate if there was some posthumous recognition of his work on this planet it is perhaps ironic that um, when he was found, which by the way I forgot to mention it was just after Parliament had gone to recess for a number of months so we couldn't ask any questions about it when he was found dead in the woods in a rather sad way Tony Blair was receiving 17 standing ovations Uh, from the US Congress for giving some sort of moral justification to George Bush's illegal war in Iraq Uh, one can't help thinking that uh, there's something rather unjust about that comparison Uh, I would like to see David Kelly recognised for the work he did uh, because while Blair and Bush were causing wars David Kelly had actually done quite a lot to avoid them he was the one who had taken away the weapons of mass destruction not Blair and Bush and I think that should be recognised now, we continue with an interview with Dr. David
2: Halpin, who, as a retired surgeon, observed what was claimed about Dr. David Kelly's death and said that that made no sense at all based on his experience as a doctor. And with a group of other doctors and a coroner, formed a legal opposition to the David Kelly case and tried to challenge that in the High Court. And this is an interview after the UK government's decision to refuse to reopen the inquest into Dr David Kelly's death. It's from December 2011.
1: I was told to expect failure, all right? So I'm not weeping. I might weep later. But nothing has changed. You don't bleed to death from cutting the ulnarata in your wrist that, as a surgeon, many surgeons will tell you, doesn't happen. And that's what was said to have happened to Dr Kelly. The other thing which hasn't changed is there's still no inquest. Do you understand me? There was no inquest worth its salt eight years ago, well, eight and a half years ago, and there's been no inquest today. All they've done is to refuse an inquest. All right? So the facts haven't changed. What we've been trying to do is to uphold the laws of our country. And I'm afraid the laws of our country have been trampled in this case because Dr Kelly is unique, for several decades at least, in not having had a proper inquest for his unnatural death. Do you understand me? He didn't die of pneumonia. He died, we found him in a wood with a cut in his wrist and um, some empty packets of pills alongside. The thing is the law that we saw today, or we were subject to subjected to was quite arcane. It was quite quite complicated really. And um, but you have to keep saying, what's it about? And what it's about is that there was a man died unnaturally, as I've said, and a Lord Chancellor who also had another post, he was Secretary of State for Constitutional Affairs, he decided Whilst within a few hours of Dr. Kelly's body being found, he decided to have an informal inquiry, an inquiry without an oath. That's an ad hoc inquiry. Added another thing later, called seventeen A. We can discuss that as well. Not enough time. But the thing is that that he did it, the alacrity that Lord Falconer applied to this case was extraordinary. Consider the um, Chilcot Inquiry, I call it the conversation because it has no law, nothing will happen. That, that started six and a half years after they first started killing people in Iraq. Six and a half years. Kelly's inquiry or at least the appointment of it happened the morning his body was found. Work that one out. Well, we know why it was done like that because uh, Falconer wanted to contain, contain the Inquiry. So that everything was filtered, do you see? So the police didn't come forward with evidence saying there were no fingerprints on the knife, no fingerprints on the spectacles, no DNA or something. A lot of evidence was retained, and you say why was it retained? If it was an inquest for, was suicide, these things would have come forward. We've had to prise these facts out one by one. Particularly a man called Miles Goslett, a journalist, freelance journalist, and he has through freedom of information requests, um, got these things out. It was was mentioned today, but not in the right context, you see. What we heard today was a small part of what you would get at an inquest. If there was inquest, it would run for about six, seven weeks on this man, and then the country would know his death was properly investigated. At the moment, it hasn't been investigated at all, whatever you're told.
2: The government will certainly
1: be hoping this is the end of the matter. No, it's not. No, no, no. no you, I can tell you there are millions of people in this country who were shocked by his death and remain certain that they haven't heard the whole story. I'm not saying that he was uh, murdered. Maybe he was a suicide. But what we do know is the inquiry was insufficient.
2: I get the impression you
1: believe it was a lot deeper than just... I do. The 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 story about him being the source, he wasn't the source anyway of this sexing up. We all knew the dossier was sexed up to justify the Iraq war. Millions of people knew that in this country. So that was a known, do you see? So it wasn't as if that was any great secret. But um, if you look at the... It is complicated, really, but he had access to a lot of um, information. had five... um, ...hard drives in his house, with encrypted, encrypted apparently. Um, they were removed by the police after he was found dead. And um, I feel he would have known what was being used in Iraq. And if you look at my website, the website of David Halpin... ...and you look at an essay I wrote, which was Tony Blair, my favourite person. Uh, that wasn't the title. Tony Blair, Questions Before Charge... If you look down the bottom of the essay, you will see some pictures. There's a picture of a lady in Palestine who's got shrapnel in her tummy, died. And there's a picture of a boy called Ali Abbas, whose arms were burned off, incinerated. So he's armless. He's back in Baghdad now. And that boy, um, Ali Abbas, his arms were incinerated by... I don't know what it was exactly, but it was some type of nuclear weapon. Ten days from when the bombardment started. Ali Abbas. His mum and dad and ten relatives were incinerated in the same house that night. There's no weapon I know about which can cause that, which is conventional. And I think people, I think that that Dr Kelly might have known about this. You see what What I mean? Well, I think that don't ever believe that we don't use some pretty vile weapons. What is a a weapon of mass destruction? A thousand kilogram bombs, where they're now talking about using nuclear tipped bunker buses in Iran, you see? So I think Kelly might have known that. I don't know. But he was a very intelligent man, a conscientious man, I think. And I would suspect that he knew something that. This is, of course, assuming that there was foul play. We don't know that. What we need is a proper inquest. Um, I was born in 1940. I was the eldest of four children. My sister, who's the second one down the line, was here today supporting me and supporting this country. I'm a patriot, so is she, so millions of others. And we want a country to be truthful and not to be corrupt. This country is corrupt at the top and for a long way down, you know? To lie, when I was a a little one, to lie was a cardinal sin. So when I see untruthfulness, when I see a lie, I have to react. And I cannot stand lies, hate lies. And uh, this is why I've stuck with it. And I know this is a lie, this case, you see. Uh, Not necessarily. He may have taken his life.